Nice. I'll stay back here so I don't spit on anybody or anything like that. I'll give some extra distance. But uh, good morning. Glad to have you guys with us again. So glad you're here. We are on our eighth and final week of a series that we've been doing here tonight called Difference Makers. So it's a series we've been doing going through the book of Nehemiah. So for the last eight weeks, we've been learning lessons from Nehemiah and, uh, and from that book about how you and I can make God-sized differences in our world today. And man, I was thinking about it this week, and I'm like, man, do you think our, our world could use some God-sized differences these days? Do you think they could use some God-sized hope in our world these days, some hope bringers, some, some restorers and rebuilders of, of cities and of uh, just all kinds of stuff? Absolutely. If, if ever there was a time for God to use us, his church, and to raise them up to be difference makers in our generation, in our world, it's now. Well, today we're going to wrap up the series by looking at chapter 7 and 8 of Nehemiah, and I'm calling it Home for Exiles, because uh, the first six chapters of Nehemiah sort of chronicle uh, Nehemiah's journey, right, from, from uh, way far away, almost a thousand miles away from Jerusalem, when he hears the news uh, that Jerusalem, the city, known as the city of God in the Old Testament, when he heard that was in shambles, that the temple, temple had been broken down, when everything, like it was trash, and the, the, pretty much the people of God were no more. He sat down and he wept. And pretty soon God started tapping him on the shoulder as, as he was praying, as he was fasting. He said, you know what? I'm calling you to go and make a difference. I want to use you to be a difference maker in your world, in your people, in, the, in, in your time. And so uh, Nehemiah obeys. He goes, uh, like I said, takes a, a journey of almost a thousand miles and, uh, and goes back to Jerusalem, kind of rallies the people. They start rebuilding. And the first six chapters talks about uh, how God uh, used Nehemiah and the people of that day to rebuild a wall. The next seven chapters in the book of Nehemiah are like, great, you rebuilt the wall, and now people can move in, and they can live there, and they can, they can be a part of the city of God, they can be a part of the people of God. But the next seven chapters talks about how they can be transformed to, from, actually, from having that be their identity to actually living like the people of God. And so we're going to spend some time looking at that today. It's about... The last seven chapters about basically transforming the exiles, those that have grown up outside of Jerusalem, outside of God's kingdom, and teaching them how to live in God's kingdom and be a part of his people. I was thinking about it this week and just thinking, man, I can remember <laughs> multiple times in my life where, where things changed, but I didn't exactly know how. I can remember Tina and I being up front in front of a big room full, of big church, big room full of people, and we made some vows one day, right, to, to God and to one another, and we... We promised that uh, you know we would love and serve and whatever you know one another you know sickness in and hell till death does part all that kind of stuff and we're like cool we walk out of there like cool I'm a husband I had no idea what that meant right like, I was like it's cool I, I kind of had a little bit of an idea but over the next weeks and months and years suddenly I learned a ton about what it meant to actually live that out right that's a totally just just being a husband. Versus living and knowing what that means is are, are totally different things. Or like I can remember when we had uh, our firstborn, right, our, our daughter Lizzie, and uh, you know we're at the hospital and all this kind of stuff, and and uh, we're like, oh, cool, we're parents. In fact, we used to we get down in her face like when she was in her little crib and be like, where are your parents? You know, like kind of thing. And and, and and then the time came for us to be released and us to take her home, and we we put her in her little car seat. They look so tiny at that point; they're just this little thing in there, and we're like. Is that, are they seriously sending this little kid home with us? We have no idea what we're doing, right? Our identity had changed. We were parents. 
But we had no idea really what that meant. And it took weeks and months and years for God to teach us. And we're still learning, right? For, for God to teach us. What does that actually mean? What does it look like to live out that new identity as parents? When I think this is uh, what's happening here, God says, very cool, I've used you to rebuild the city, it's a miracle in 52 days, right? We, we, we heard that last week. In 52 days, your, your city has been transformed, sort of, your people have been transformed. Now you are inhabitants of the city of God, right? You are uh, God's people, you are citizens of God's kingdom. <laughs> and they're like, cool, I have no idea what that means, right? Because they've grown up for 100 years, they've grown up in other countries and in other cultures and in other places. It's just, and just now have they been brought back together. And so God kind of gives them a crash course on what does it look like to live and to operate as my people. And we're going to see today in, a, in, in chapter 7, a lot in chapter 8, mostly in chapter 8, we're going to see he gives them kind of a crash course through a festival uh, of what it means, what it actually looks like for them to live as God's people. So that's kind of where we're going Um the, the, the reason I think that's cool and the reason I think it's got an application and it's practical for us today is because we're exiles too, the Bible tells us. We have grown up in a culture and in among people, most of us, right, that uh, don't really know the, the, the kingdom of God, aren't really accustomed to. In fact, a lot of times the values of the world that we live in and the culture and the way things are heading are in direct opposition to what God's plans and kingdom are for our world and for our lives. And so we've grown up going this direction, and suddenly we're like, cool, Jesus busts into our hearts and our lives, and we're like, woohoo, I'm a Christ follower, I'm a Jesus follower. We're like, no idea what that means, right? <laughs> that kind of thing. And so God, God, God does the same thing with us. He's saying, yes, you're exiles, right? But I've brought you back into my kingdom, and now I'm going to teach you what it means to be the people of God. And that's where it has practical input for us, right? That's where, that's where these two, that's where Nehemiah's day in our culture, I think, intersect, and where uh, we, he has a lot to say to us about that. So I, we're going to learn some good stuff from there. I love just the picture that gets painted in here. I'm going to start with verse uh, with Nehemiah 7, starting with verse 4. We left off verse 3 last week. I'm going to read just a little bit of this, and then I'm going to skip the, most of the rest of uh, that chapter. I'll tell you why in a second. But uh, that's where we're picking up. Nehemiah 7, starting with verse 4, says this. Now the city was large, but there were few people in it. And the houses had not yet been rebuilt. And so my God put it on my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the common people for registration by families. I found a genealogical record of those who had been, who had been the first to return uh, to Jerusalem. And this is what I found written there. These are the people of the provinces who came up from captivity of the exiles who Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to their own town, in the company of, now it's a long list of names, so give me some grace here. Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Remiah, I'm still, oh, it's back up. Uh, Nahamani, something like that, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, uh, Big, I don't know, Bigvi, who knows. Uh, Nehem and Danah, uh, the list of the men of Israel. And then it goes on, and it lists person after person, and family after family, and for the whole next, like, 70 verses in, in, in uh, chapter 7. Uh, it kind of goes through this huge long list of the families and the people, those who had returned to Jerusalem from exile. This is kind of who they're starting with, and it's a really big list. And if you're like me, it's very similar to the list a, a few weeks ago we talked about when they, of who rebuilt the wall, who rebuilt each section of the wall. You read through it, you think, you scratch your head, you're like, why in the world did God think this was important enough 
to put in this whole huge long list uh, in. And, and uh, there's, of course, all kinds of answers uh, to that question. There's all kinds of reasons uh, why it's significant, important. There's some historical implications. It gives us some validity, right? I mean, if somebody gives you a picture of something that's got super sketchy details, especially in our day and age, you see something like that on social media, you're like, I'm, I'm calling fake news, right? I mean, you're like, no. but this has unbelievable specificity. It can be backed up by the whole historical record, all that kind of stuff. None of that really matters that much to me. Here's, here's the, here's the, uh, the reason that, that struck me this week, and, uh, and, and I think maybe it should strike you too. And this is why I think maybe it's significant. One of the main reasons maybe that God uh, includes uh, this huge list of names in his Bible and in scripture for us. And I think the reason uh, that he takes so much time listing people and individuals and families is because each and every one of them matter to God. Right? I mean, he starts out talking about how, how he called an assembly of the nobles. And what do we know about the nobles? Do, we, do You guys have been here the last few weeks. Nobles, good guys or bad guys in the story? Kind of bad guys, right? It's, it's, that's exactly right. I mean, you're nobles, you should say, ooh, right? I mean, like, they have not been good. But he invites the nobles. He invites the common people. He invites everybody because each one of them matters to God. He takes sort of a, a stock of who's here, who has returned, and then he lists them all out because each and every one matters to God. It doesn't matter if you are the lowest of the low and maybe your occupation is, I don't know, what's an occupation that they, like a dumb collector, right? Is there somebody that goes through and scoops poop? I don't know. Like, whatever the bottom of the social status would be, all the way up to the nobles. And, and every person in between, it's the way they say, you know what, you matter to God. I don't care where you come from. I don't care who, like, where you've been exiled to. I don't care how close you feel to God, how far away you feel. I don't care the color of your skin. I don't care about any of that. You matter to God. You matter so much, right? I mean, you matter to God. You, he knows your name. He cares about all the details of your lives. There's not a person you have ever locked eyes with that God isn't absolutely crazy about. And one of the, one of the crazy cool things is as we start to recognize and understand that God loves us, right, that God is crazy about us, that, that we matter to him, that we have been adopted back into his family. One of the crazy things is, in my mind, you actually remember, this is one of the things that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Because every other religion in the world, to some degree, will have part of it that says, you can be loved by God if you do this, and if you do this, and if you're good enough, and if, you're, if you sort of pull yourself up, if you clean your, get your stuff together, if you get everything worked out, then maybe God will love you, or forgive you, or offer you a spot in heaven. That's totally different from Jesus, right? The life of Jesus, the life that this book teaches the relationship with God that this book teaches is completely separate. It says, you know, it's actually not based on you. God's love for you is not based on your performance, but it's based on him. It's based on who he is. He's crazy about you because that's the kind of God that he is. In fact, the Bible says he's so crazy. He loves you so much. You matter to him so much that the Bible teaches that he came and died for us while we were yet sinners. Even though we had turned away, and all of us have, right, in one way or another, we have turned our backs on God. Like, yeah, I don't really want your way in this part of my life. I'd rather just sort of go my own way, do my own thing. But he says, while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus came and he died for us. He took our sins and he died in our place. That's just how much he loves you. He loves you. He thinks you're worth dying for. He 
you matter to God. But here's the thing, folks. Not only do you matter to God, it's not just an individualistic thing because the Bible also teaches that God so loved, where does that go? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. What does the world mean? Is it talking about like he loves the globe? Is that what it means? That he loves the land? Is that what it means? He loves who? He so loved every person. God's dream has, has never been just an individualistic one, although individually we respond to and we embrace and we open our hearts and receive what he's done for us by faith, right? That's, that's the individual part. But then from that moment forward, he welcomes us into a community, into his, his family, right? Into, into, to be a part of his people. His dream has never been an individualistic one. It's always been to, 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 for a, a people to come, for us to be rescued by him and put into his family, and then together to become his people, a people that are characterized by him and his love and his presence. He wants to fill us and use us to be difference makers in this world as his people. He wants to shine through his people to a world that desperately needs Jesus. He wants to shine his love and his presence to the world through us. He has made you and he has made me to be a part of his kingdom, his people, and his family, where we can come to life and where we can flourish and we can shine together for him. In the Old Testament, his people were known as, what do you think? Didn't know there would be quizzes today in church, did you? In the Old Testament, God's people were known as Israel, right? Jews, Israel, that kind of thing. In the New Testament, his people are known as Christians, what? Christ followers, the church, right? It's the, 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 the real church. Church, not just church attendance, not just sitting here, but, but the church is anybody that is, that is a follower of Jesus, anybody that's put their hope and their faith and their trust in Christ, opened their hearts wide up and said, Jesus, I need you. Would you come and save me? Would you be my king and my God? From that point forward, we are welcomed. We, our identity significantly changes. We're no longer just an individual. We are a part of God's family, right? We are a part of, of his people. And he has plans. You might not feel like it. <laughs> it might not, you might not live like it all the time. But it's who you are. You are a part. You are his people. You're a part of his people. And there's certain things that we're going to look at in, this, in the rest of this passage as we move forward. Certain things that are to be hallmarks of his people. This is all over the pages of scripture. Not just, not just here. But 1 Peter, for instance, uh, puts it this way. I love uh, it's helping. Help, 1 Peter's helping uh, sort of some non-Jewish people to have this understanding of being God's people. He says this, he says to the church, he says, but you, plural by the way, are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light and his wonderful light. Once you are not a people, but now, he says, you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. It's who we are. We are meant to be the people of God. Now, again, we don't always act like it. We don't always think like it because, like exiles, we have physically come home. I mean, we may have physically come home and have been restored as part of our identity, but we might not understand what it looks like or what it means to actually live our lives as the people of God. Like in Nehemiah's day, we need to be reminded of what that means. We need to learn to live that in reality. Listen to this quote. This is a great quote. It said this, Wayne Mack. He says, I believe that one of the major reasons the Church of Jesus Christ in the United States is very close to being in sheer chaos today is because so many people think of themselves 
as individuals rather than as part of the body, as part of the people of Christ. Right? Christianity is not every man for himself. No, it's every man together for Christ. It's all of us together for Christ. Why? Because we are the people of God. We're going to keep going. We're going to jump all the way to verse 73 of chapter 7 and go on into verse chapter 8. It says this. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the temple servants, along with, the, uh, with certain of the people and the rest of the Israelites, settled in their own towns. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible, right? It's the Bible he's talking about, which the Lord God commanded for Israel. And so on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, of all who were able to understand it. He read it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and the women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood uh, on a high wooden platform built for the occasion, and beside him on his right side, uh, Mattathiah, Shema, here we go again, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah, uh, and on the left of him was, uh, what is it, Pediah, Mishael, Melchijam, Hashem, Hashbanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Somebody ought to clap for that. <laughs> I can't believe I'm through it. Anyway, no, no, I'm kidding. Anyway, verse 5. Ezra opened the book. And listen to this. All the people could see him because they were standing, uh, because he was standing above him and he opened the book. And all the people stood up. Verse 6. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen and Amen. And then they bowed down and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. All right, so, so let me just give you a snapshot. Here's what's going on. Uh, one of the first things they do after they build the wall, right, after the people have sort of moved back home, is they hold an assembly, a gathering of all the people. And this gathering is going to end up being eight days long. And throughout this celebration, God is going to remind them and teach them what it looks like to be his people. And the first thing... That he mentions here. First thing that kind of happens, it happens almost intuitively. But the first thing that happens, and the first thing that it means to be a part of the people of God, is it means to be a people centered around worship, worshiping the Lord. It's about worship. Tim Keller says worship is about seeing what God is worth and giving him what he's worth, right? Giving him what he's worth. Often that comes back to praise and worship. It comes back to surrender. It comes back to offering. All of these things are included in what we talk about when we say worship, right? It's, it's offering ourselves back to God. It's recognizing who he is and offering ourselves back to God as a part of our worship. And that's what happens here. Ezra, the priest, brings out the book of the law, right? He brings out the Bible, basically. He opens it up, and before he can even start reading, he praises God. He says, you, God, are great. You're powerful. You're good. You are our God, and we are your people. You're the rebuilder of the wall. You're the restorer and rescuer of your people. You are great. He's praising God. And he starts praising God. All the people do what? They raise their hands in worship to God. And they start, they start sort of 
worshiping along with him. And the thing that's cool is we, we sometimes will raise our hands in worship too, but it can mean all different kinds of things. Even biblically, when we raise our hands to God in worship, it can mean a lot of things. Sometimes, and this is kind of the picture they're giving here, they're, they're it's hands almost like proclaiming or going along and saying, yes, God, this is true. It's sort of, it, it, that's why they say amen and amen. Right? That's, he is a great God. He is an awesome God. So they raise their hands sometimes when we, we could we, we put our hands like this in worship, it's a, it's a sign of surrender. That's coming. We'll see that in a second. Or sometimes it can even be like, you know, pick me up, daddy. <laughs> you know, kind of people, people express and mean a lot of things when they raise their hands to God in worship. In this context, right, they're, they're proclaiming it. They're saying, yes, our God is a great God. And I have to say, we kind of understand this because this, this happens in our culture sometimes, too. Doesn't it? For instance, how many here have ever seen a Rocky movie? Ba-da-da, right? The end shot of almost every Rocky movie of all time is what? It's Sylvester Stallone with his hands up like this, right? What is, why does he throw his hands up like that at the end? Because what? Because he's great? Yes, because what else? Because somebody, what's that? He's victorious, right? He raises his hands in victory. Like, and then he, in typical Rocky fashion, he says, Adrian, right? We did it, right? <laughs> we did it. We're victorious. We're champions. We're, we're number one. And sometimes at other sporting events, we do the same thing. People raise their hand. You know, they, they take the final shot, right? They make it. The buzzer goes. Woo! They raise their hand, pick a finger up, say, we're number one. We're the greatest, right? We're the best. We're the whatever. This is similar. It's similar. It's, it's, in fact, it's probably worship, right, <laughs> in, a very, in a very different way. But, but here, for God's people, it's, it, it's never about raising our hands and saying, oh, look how great we are. That is not it, right? In, in, instead, in God's kingdom and as, as a part of his people, it's a constant reminder where we lift our eyes to God. Maybe we raise our hands and we say, you know what? He's the great one. You know what? He is the victorious one. He is the one that rescued me. He is the one that gave me strength. He is the one that swooped in when I had nothing and he put my feet on solid ground and we stand here today because of him, right? It's, it's, it's the same kind of picture here. They raise their hands together before God in worship and say, you are great. And then it says, what do they do? Then they bow down with their faces to the ground and they worship. It's a picture of surrender. It's a picture of saying, you are the great one, and we are your people, and we are the ones that need you. And again, we understand this too. It's a classic thing when you're before royalty, what do you do? You bow, right? I mean, it's, it's the same kind of thing. We understand that. This is a, a very practical way that they're doing it. They're bowing before and saying, you are our God, you are our king, and we are your people. Have your way. Right? We're yours, God. I love that picture of worship, of raising our hands and praising God for who he is and moving into a, a place of surrender to the one true king. This is an important part of what it means to be God's people. Corporate worship, it's, it's so important. In fact, it's why, it's one of the primary reasons why we gather together week after week because we need to come and worship together, right? It's, it's, it's part of why we are created. One of the most important reasons of why we're, why we're created is to bring God praise, to worship him for who he is. And I'll tell you what, I, I've heard so many times uh, where, and I've experienced this myself plenty of times, when uh, you, know, you have a discouraging week, you have a hard week where you're getting your butt kicked all week and you come in and your shoulders are slumped and you come in 
And, and when we come into the house of the Lord, so to speak, right, we gather together with God's people and we worship and we start singing songs and we open up God's book and we, we proclaim and we remember that God is great. And we lift our hands, even when we're not feeling it at first sometimes, right? We lift our hands and we sing with all we've got and we proclaim it. And sometimes we're just clinging to it. God, I want it to be true. I'm not feeling it, but help me, help me hold on to that today. And then we open up our hands. Maybe we bow internally and we open up our hands and we say, God, we need you. And we suddenly, we meet with the living God and we walk out of there with hope in our lungs. We we lift we walk out of there with lightness and we go to serve and to live with the Lord. Worship is powerful. Corporate worship. And of course, do we need to do it privately? Should we be worshiping and praying and thanking God and praising God every day? Of course we should, right? And we'd encourage that, we teach on that. But there's something powerful about where two or more are gathered, about coming together and worshiping because we need one another. I've, I've been doing uh, pastoral ministry for like 25 years now, which makes me, makes me sound like an old guy. But anyway, <laughs> we'll just pretend that didn't. I didn't say that, but anyway, but I've been doing it long enough. I've seen a lot of a lot of people. I've heard a lot of stories uh, where people uh, kind of just get out of the habit of, uh, of of coming in and worshiping corporately on, on a regular basis. And you know what I've heard? I think every time. I mean, if if I've heard anything, I've heard this story. They will see them come back. Sometimes we've seen people come back maybe ten years later with a story of how they got out of the habit and just started like. It was never good for their relationship with God. It always that is a story of woe about how, like how man, it is, Satan is kind of, the enemy has wreaked havoc on me. It's been a really hard season. And, and so, so often we'll be like, man, if only, if only I would have continued to gather together with God's people to worship, to be reminded that there is a great God in heaven, one that knows my name, one that cares that is present. If only I would have continued to meet together with open hands and say, God, I need you. That would have changed everything. Well, I have no idea where I am, so I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> uh, that's kind of where we were, but that is part of what it means to be God's people, right? They're a people committed and focused around worshiping God, whether it be proclaiming his greatness or worshiping and, and, and surrendering to him. Quietness. It's all the same. We're going to jump ahead. Verse 7. We'll keep going here. I think so. Yeah. There we go. It says, Then uh, the Levites, uh, Jeshua, Bani, uh, Sherebiah, Jamin, uh, Akub, I don't know, Shabathi, Padiah, um, again, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, whatever. They instructed the, uh, they, they instructed the people in the law. While the people were standing there, they instructed them, not just proclaimed, they started talking about what does that look like and what does it mean to actually live this stuff out. Verse 8, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Verse 9, then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this is a day that is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Listen to this. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Let me just stop there for a second. Second thing, kind of the second thing in terms of what it means to be the people of God, right? The, the picture that he's, he's teaching the Israelites, the Jews in Nehemiah's day, but he's also teaching us is we are to be not just a people, well, this, this, right? A people of worship, but also a people of the word. 
What's fascinating to me, uh, there's several things about this, right? The first thing is, is uh, Ezra gets up in front of all the people, he opens up the book, and what do people do, by the way, at this point? They stand, which is an interesting thing. They stand, why, why would you stand, by the way? When you stand up uh, for something like that, why would you do that? Respect, Respect. what else? Honor, yep, reverence, all this kind of stuff, right? It's a way of saying, oh my gosh, pay attention, we stand up out of respect. They had such a high view of God's word that they stood. And then this last part is fascinating to me as well. It says, man, they're telling them, hey, don't, don't forget, this is a time of celebration, right? This is good news, this is a holy day. Don't mourn or weep because the people were hearing the word of God and what were they doing? They were weeping. They were mourning because the way they were living did not line up with God's word. God's people are to be characterized by being people of this book. They're to, be, they're to let their lives, right, be transformed and aligned to look more and more and more like his plan for them every moment of every day. And I, just, I, I, I read that and I think, oh man, first of all, it's a convicting verse. When's the last time that I, I'll, I'll ask it to you as well. When's the last time that you were so convicted by the word of God that you wept? How often is it, for, let me ask, another, ask it a different way. If I open up God's book and I read something that doesn't square with my life, which one do I assume is wrong? God's word or my life? Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, I think we know the right answer. Oh, the right answer, what I'm supposed to say is my life. However, so often, it's the opposite. We're like, that can't mean that. <laughs> that, that. I must be reading, that can't be. I'm going to flip to something else because I don't really like that part of the scripture. Right? That, that whole, like, uh, forgive the person seven times 70 kind of thing when you've been, when they stabbed you in the back a bunch of, like, I don't really like that verse. Like, let's go, uh, clearly that must mean something else because my life is fine. It's the word of God that's, but no. But we do that, don't we? Like, or we kind of ignore it. Like, like we stick our head, it's, a, it's our stick, in the, stick our head in the sand kind of approach to theology. Like, I'm not going to actually believe that because I don't want to believe that. I'm just going to, but they had such a high, uh, they were revering the word of God so highly when they heard it, they were cut to the heart and they repented. They're like, man, I've been, I've been living in a foreign land. I've been shaped by the values and the culture around me. And they hear the word of God and they're broken and they repent and they turn back and they say, God, would you forgive me? Would you change me? Would you help, help me and teach me, empower me to live my life for you, with you, in your way? That's powerful. See, that, that's, that's what the community of God, that's what the people of God are meant to live like. People that are all about worshiping God, right? Worship, surrender. People that are people of the book that in again large gatherings we need to be together because because sometimes we'll hear stuff and uh, uh, your pastor or others will bring words that you wouldn't necessarily want to bring to yourself that you wouldn't hear yourself we need that i need that you need that but it also means opening up his book and looking for ways to put it into practice in the day-to-day -day, inviting him to speak to you and transform you and change you and make you more like him right? that's god's people are people This is going to take us to the, to the good stuff. Let's, let's go to verse 10. I think this is great. Uh, uh, yeah, Nehemiah 8, starting verse 10, says this. Nehemiah said, 
go and enjoy choice foods and sweet drinks, right? He's, he's saying, don't, don't weep and mourn. This is a celebration. This is a holy day to the Lord. So he says, he says uh, go and enjoy choice foods and sweet drinks and send some of those uh, who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not grieve. He says this, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Love this. Verse 11, the Levites combed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. And then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. There's a fascinating connection here. Uh, that, first of all, I just love, and we need this. Uh, I love how in the Old Testament, God's, God thought celebration was so important, he built it into the last part where it says they they celebrated with great joy because they now understood God's word and had aligned their lives to it. There's a connection between when we worship God, when we surrender, when we hear his word and repent and turn back to him and respond. There's a connection between that and great joy. I mentioned earlier that Psalm 1611 that says there's joy, there's great joy in your presence, God. And, uh, man, I tell you what, it's true. It's true. Sometimes I think we get uh, duped into believing that, that the good stuff is found outside of God and that God's trying to hold us back or keep us from enjoying stuff. Nothing could be further from the truth. God's like, man, I give you my word. I give you these things so that you, so that my joy can be in you and that your joy can be complete. Isn't that great? We have God who delights. I mean, I've shared this before, but I mean, God is the most joyful being in the world, right? In the universe. He created you and he created me out of his great joy. And he invites you into relationship with him, right? Us into relationship with him as his people to enjoy him, to, to, to live in his joy and live out his joy forever. He is not holding back on you. He is showing you the way to Good stuff. A community centered around living in and experiencing and enjoying God, right? Living in the joy of the Lord. It says the joy of the Lord is our strength. Yeah, I better keep going. Verse 13 says this. On the second day of the month, there we go. On the second day of the month, uh, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra, the teacher, to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim his word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from the myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make temporary shelters as, as it is written. So the, so the people went out, they brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and, uh, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had uh, returned from, from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated like this, and their joy was very great. There it is again, and their joy was very great. Now, it's kind of a strange picture. I'll, I'll give you that um, about like, what's this whole business of building shelters, but stick with me. This is actually something uh, that God had commanded them to do in, in Leviticus 23. It was 
a celebration that was to last for seven days and they worshiped again on the eighth to dwell in God's presence, to celebrate and remember all that he had done. But part of this that really caught my attention this week was the missional part, right? It was the missional part of it. It's like, yes, you're, we want you to come and build little shelters so that you can be near God's house, that you can celebrate and remember all that he has done for you. But, it says, but before you do that, I want you to go out and I want you to share the word, this word, with everybody else in the region. And I want you to invite them back to my town, right, to my city, to into my family, to be a part of my people, to worship and celebrate and remember how great our God is. And that's just that's that's the last one that I was kind of thinking about this week. I love the picture. There's this the people of God are centered around, right, worshiping Him. They're centered around the people of the Word, the people of His book. They found and learned to experience. A joy in his presence and they, they seek it and long for it with everything they have and they also are understand their role and their identity they're even passionate about living out the mission of God God's dream again has never been an individualistic one and Jesus makes this abundantly clear he's like he's like hey, come on church right he's like come, he's like it's not just you and God he goes here's here's the thing there's a mission that I have for you he says go and make disciples of all nations right great commission he says he says, go and be my witnesses. I want you to share with the world, with all in your city and region and world. I want you to share with them about what you've seen or what you've experienced from me. He invites us into his mission, right? Saying, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost and broken and hurting and alone. He's like, go to them and point them back home. Let them know that I care. Let them know that they can be a part of my people. Go on mission and live for me and with me. And as we live out, right, all these things, as we live out uh, the, our, our identity as the people of God to worship, as people of the book, surrendering, aligning our lives to it, uh, as we even live on mission with God, it, it, just like that says, that last verse is, and their joy was very great. There's tremendous joy we find uh, in God and even with one another as we live these things out together. God's dream. It's part of what it looks like to be his people. It's the good stuff. A few quotes I've got. You can just rapid fire these or whatever. There you go. Tim Keller says the church doesn't simply have a missions department. It should wholly exist to be on mission for and with Jesus. Carrie Newham says when the church uh, becomes all about your personal preferences, you lose the mission. Uh, you lose the good stuff. Uh, a friend of mine, Clark Corbett, well, acquaintance of mine, I should say, says this. It says, every person is a priest, every home is a church, a healing community reaching out to a sick society. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the mission, right? Where When Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, he's saying, I'm sending you. And, and another translation, another way to say that is it, it means literally as you go, as you go amongst your life, as you go on your way, as you go to work, as you mow your yard, as you go wherever you're going, Make disciples of Jesus. Point people back home and let them know that there's a God that's crazy about them, that knows their name. Right? And don't run over them with a mower. Yeah, thank you, Lee. That's, that's exactly right. That is not the way to drive home or try to communicate. Right? Let them know there's a God that loves them who died to save them, and his name is Jesus. Well, friends, I don't know where you're at with God today. I'm not sure what he's saying to you. Maybe you're here today, and more than anything, maybe 
reminded that you matter to God. Right? That there, that, that He knows. It doesn't matter if you feel close to Him or if you feel super far away. It doesn't matter if you're like, man, I think God would be proud of me today, or if you're like, I would be ashamed if He knew, you know, if He if He were to look in on. Doesn't matter how close or how far away you feel, you matter to God. He knows your name. He knows where you live. <laughs> Don't that, that in a creepy stalker kind of way, <laughs> but, but like He knows you. He knows the very hairs on your head. He knows everything about you, and he loves you still. He thinks you're worth dying for. And he has. Maybe you're here today and you've never really opened up your, your heart or your life to Jesus. Maybe this Jesus stuff is new to you. And if that's the case, man, I would just encourage you today just to open up your heart. Even as much as you can, just crack the door of your heart a little bit. Just say, God, I want to know you, Jesus. I want to know you more. I need you. I want you. Would you come and forgive me? Would you come and lead me? Would you come and guide me and be my king and my God? I want to be a part of your people. I want to be a part of your family. I need you. If you've never done that before, man, I encourage you, do it today. If you're not quite ready, then I encourage you, do what it takes, right? Take your steps. Check him out. Open up his book. Maybe you're going to start opening up to one of the, the gospels or biographies about Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Open up to one of those and start reading just a chapter a day, just a little bit a day. I'll take it five minutes. Just a little bit as you do, sort of get to know Jesus and see if he's not worth following. It's the good stuff. Maybe you're here today and, I don't know, it's just a discouraging time. And maybe this morning, God's just speaking to you and saying, you know what? You matter to me. I have not abandoned you. I never will. I haven't left you. I haven't forsaken you. I know I know you've blown it. I know you've continued to live out some of these battles and gone, gone some of your own ways. It's okay. There's grace. Now come back and follow me. And this morning, he's coming. Maybe if we're honest, you'd say, you know what? Uh, I have allowed, you know, during this whole COVID time or whatever else, I've allowed my uh, commitment and priority to, to, to worship and to public worship and to, to gathering together, I've allowed that to slip a bit. And I'm not talking about if, you, if you're watching online or whatever, that's fine too. I'm, I'm not saying if you don't feel safe or whatever, that's totally fine. But I'm just saying, like, for so many, I think it's been easy for us to start, like, right after uh, COVID hit, we were online, all of us, every week, and then and something's like every other week, and it's like maybe once a month, and then it's like maybe, well, I meant to, right, kind of thing. And maybe uh, maybe some of us have just sort of slipped down in our, our, our priority of worshiping God. Maybe this morning the living God is speaking to you and saying, you are my son, you are my daughter. Part of what that means is that you need this. I need this. We need to gather together to raise our hands, right? To raise our voices and proclaim and be reminded that our God is great. That there is no one like him. That joy is found in his presence. There is nothing better. Maybe, maybe we just need to, to come with, with hands down like this or bow down before him and just surrender again and say, God, would you forgive me? Stuff is that as we align our lives 
to this book, right? As we start hearing his voice and responding with our lives, he says, it leads to joy. There's joy. It's the good stuff. Maybe today he's just saying, it's time to reconnect. It's time to hear me again. We just, we just sort of start afresh today and tomorrow and the day after that. Just open it up my book. Read a little bit. It doesn't even matter, right? You can read a chapter. You can read a verse. I read, just start reading something and then just start saying, God, what are you saying to me about this? How can I live this out in my life? And put it into practice. You will never, ever be sorry that you did. It's the good stuff. It leads towards the life that he has, not just for me, but for us. It's the good stuff. And maybe, who knows, maybe there's uh, somebody around you this week that God is, is taking you from here. It's like he's reminding you, you are my people. You're part of my people. And every time we are sent out from this place, we go on mission. We are, we are to live out the mission of Jesus. We are to point people back home to him. He's calling us and sending us out to make a difference in our world for Jesus, to point other people back to him. And so maybe this week, maybe there's somebody around you that's in need, somebody that's struggling, somebody that needs more than anything you to come and help point them back home for unrepentant sin, ways that we are off in us, ways that in our lives that don't line up with you. Pray that you break us, that you would bring us back home. Pour out your grace and your forgiveness on us because of Jesus. Remake us again and again, day after day, and teach us, strengthen us to follow you, to be all yours, God. I pray that this wouldn't be just a a task that we do, but I pray that we would see and know and understand and live in and for your joy. Lord, there's joy in you. There's joy in your word. There's joy in life with you. And I pray uh, that you would draw us as your people into that joy. And that we as well, in turn, can, can invite others into that joy as well. Thank you for your faithfulness. Your